My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Those are verses eight through twelve of Isaiah or eight yep, eight through twelve of Isaiah fifty five, which is the passage that I've been thinking about a lot lately. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. I appreciate that. We are finishing up this week with a kind of a, we're looking at during this season of Advent, um, sort of the, the context into which Jesus was born. So, so the incarnation comes into a particular setting. The people have particular beliefs and understandings. They have a particular desire for certain kinds of things, and everybody's expectations weren't the same. That's something to, to know. Um, nor was Judaism some, some great monolith, you know, that where everybody was on the same page all the time. You had all kinds of factions within Judaism, and part of that comes from the understanding that most Jews, at the time Jesus uh, came into the world, didn't live in the land. Most of them, in fact, were outside the land altogether. And so to know that is to know then that things are developing differently in different cultures and different settings. What you end up with in the second century after Jesus' death is you end up with what were known as the Talmud, right? Well, there are two of them. So there's one in Jerusalem and there's one in Babylon. And these are put together the rabbis who are interpreting law. They're interpreting Jewish law. But, but what they say is, is that that relates to the oral law which is equal in their minds in rabbinic Judaism, the oral law supposedly given to Moses at Sinai at the same time as the Torah, um, it is equal to that. It was just too long and complex to put into a, quote, book at the time the Torah was given. And so it, it supposedly was passed down over time through the priests and through the scribes, and then in the second century A.D., they said, well, it's got to be codified. We've got to get all this down because it's a lot of rabbinic discussion. So there'll be a proposal made for how to deal with something in the, in the Talmud. There'll be a proposal that, said that, that somebody makes a statement concerning the law that says this is what the way it's to be interpreted. And then there's rabbinic discussion around that. And then most of the time comes sort of a, a consensus around that. But they preserve both the, the original statement, the, the dialogue around it, and then the consensus that develops around it. And that is not a Hegelian dialectic, by the way. That's not the way that works. There's, there's not a synthesis at the end. No, it, it preserves all the different arguments because what it says is this is the best rabbinic teaching and the best rabbinic minds thinking about this. So that's the reason they preserve all of that. So there's not at the end of it, there's not a, a definitive interpretation. But, but as I said, there are two different Talmuds. There's a Babylonian Talmud and a Jerusalem Talmud. You want to take a guess on which one's the definitive one? You're going to be surprised probably. It's Babylon. It's in Babylonia. The Babylonian Talmud is considered today to be the definitive one of those because it's considered that some of the best scholars actually at that time, in the, so in the second century A.D., were in Babylon. And I know that sounds really strange, but mostly it's because they were just scholars. 
that there, in, in Jerusalem, the, the priest casts a pretty large shadow. And so rabbinic Judaism really is an outgrowth of, of a couple of different things, and that is um, the exile in Babylon, and, and then those rabbis who went back there and, and ministered into that wealthy <laughs> Jewish community in Babylon. Afterwards, whenever there was uh, oppression of rabbinic scholars in Jerusalem. And so it, what they say is the best ones, for economic reasons, ended up in Babylon. The best teachers, the most learned scholars, ended up in Babylonia at that time. And so the Babylonian Talmud is the one that's considered to be most definitive and the most important one for most Jewish rabbis today. It's a fascinating thing, but but it gives us a glimpse into the idea of the dispersion and and the, called the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, and they were dispersed all throughout the world. You know, the first time that happens is when the Northern Kingdom falls about a hundred years prior to the fall of Jerusalem, and then they were taken by the Assyrians. And, and the way Assyria did things was they literally dispersed you all across the face of the earth, and then they brought other people in to take your place to fill up the land so that there was no room left for you. And so those are the ones that we refer to today as the lost tribes. That What happened at the time of the Babylonian exile, Babylon's um, policy was different from the Assyrian policy. What they did was they took you back to Babylon because they wanted to show you the superiority of Babylonian culture and say, oh, well, yes, I'll, I'll assimilate here because, well, this is superior. So that was the intention, and we read about that in the book of Daniel. And they take the brightest and the best of the young ones, and they bring them in, and they, they want to train them up to be good little Babylonians who will be leaders for the Jewish exile community to encourage them to be assimilated into Babylonian culture. And so we see with, with Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that they, they refuse to do that. They continue to practice their Judaism even while they were in Babylon. And, it, and, it, and God used that then to, to have a great effect on one group of people in particular, the Chaldeans, because, well, they twice Daniel saved them from sure death because he not only could interpret the dreams of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he also was able to tell the king what the dream was, which was the test that Nebuchadnezzar set for, forth for his Chaldeans, the diviners, the magicians, and all those things. And so Daniel was able to pass that test, thereby saving the Chaldeans. Those Chaldeans become... Later, that they are the forefathers of people we know today as the Magi, because they were so impressed with Daniel that they studied the scriptures that informed Daniel's wisdom. And so, therefore, they're looking for that sign, that star, and then they come. So that's, that's kind of how all this begins. And, and so they go into Babylon, and they're told, you're going to be there a long time. So you know, do things like building houses, giving your children in marriage, plant gardens, do all the kinds of things that are normal life because you're going to be there long enough. Just settle in. Don't live like you're going to be leaving tomorrow. It's going to be a long time. Live a normal life there. Well, most of the people who went into exile, most of, not just the ones who went into exile because they were there a long time, but most of the people who were Jews exiled in Babylon actually ended up staying. Only about 50,000 Jews came back. Um, so it was, it was only a small subset of the Jews that were in, that were in exile in Babylon that came back. They found it pro, to be pro, found prosperity in Babylon, and so they stayed and they remained back there rather than come back and try and rebuild Jerusalem because, well, that's going to be a long, arduous task and it's going to be, you know, really um, depressing 
to do that. And and some of these people didn't. I mean, they they weren't. They were born in Babylon. That was what they knew. That was their home. They had made homes for themselves. Now, according to Jewish law, that's wrong for them to do that. You should be in the land if you're a Jew, but they weren't. And so what what happened was is that three times a year at the uh, Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, which we know as um, Pentecost, and at um, Sukkot, which is the, the Feast of Booths, remembering the time in the wilderness, then, then you're supposed to come back to the land. That was the, the Torah commanded in uh, Deuteronomy 16, 16, three times a year shall all your men appear before the Lord your God in the place that God will choose. Now, this is prior to Jerusalem even existing. Um, in the place God will choose on the festivals of Pesach, which is Passover, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, these shall not appear empty-handed. Each shall bring his own gift appropriate to the blessing which the Lord your God has given you. That's the reason the temple had great wealth, because people were were required by the Torah to come to Jerusalem for those three festivals and to bring offerings. There was a temple tax, but then there was also other things that they would bring. And so the temple was quite wealthy because the wealth of the Jews in the dispersion was brought into the temple three times a year, every single year. And so you've got people spread all over the world. It, the, the best place to see it is actually in Acts, chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, on the day of Pentecost. The, the, the dispersion is, is grouped the way it, the way it reads the, the uh, cities and the states and the places where they come from. It, it's in two sections. There's the eastern one, which was those are on the other side of the Euphrates, and the western or Hellenist group. So they're, they're two separate people. And so the trans-Euphratic Jews inhabited Babylon and, and some of the other little satrapies. They were included with the Palestinians and the Syrians under the term Hebrews, for that was the common language they spoke. But the ones who were the Hellenized Jews, those people tended not to even speak Hebrew. In fact, at the time of Jesus, most people didn't speak Hebrew. It was, the, it was the language of scholars. We'll get into that in, in a minute. Um, but, but only about 50,000 returned under Zerubbabel and then under, under Ezra to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and then ultimately the temple after that. But the wealthiest and most influential remained behind because they didn't want to leave their wealth back there. They had settled in the land. And as I said, that, that's not what they're supposed to do. But nonetheless, they did. And they can make up for the failure to come back to the land by providing for the temple. So it, so how big was Jerusalem? Okay, so Tacitus, the, the historian, said that at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, the, uh, there was about 600,000 people there. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian at the time of Rome, uh, he said there were about a million 100,000 people slain in Jerusalem in AD 70 when the temple falls. But he's quick to add about uh, a lot of those people didn't live in Jerusalem. Those people didn't live there. They were pilgrims who were there because it happened during the Passover. So that group, it's 600,000, seems to be a fairly reasonable number of people living in Jerusalem at the time. And and we know that that you have to be in the boundaries of Jerusalem to count as having made a pilgrimage, right? So, So that's the reason that they had to extend the boundaries from their normal boundaries out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus stayed with the disciples in order to accommodate all the pilgrims. So the, so the boundaries of what were considered to be Jerusalem had to, had to be expanded during these festivals to accommodate the pilgrims so that they could fulfill their obligation to do that. Uh, 
so okay, so we know there's about six hundred thousand living in Jerusalem. So what's the size of Judaism outside of Jerusalem? And and according to Theodore Momsen, who is a, a, a historian, said that in the first century there were there were no fewer than a million Jews in Egypt. Now, the, where did they come from? Why are they in Egypt? Well, if you'll remember from Jeremiah, there's a group of people that decided we had made a. Uh, an alliance with Egypt, and so some people decided they would go to Egypt rather than go to Babylon, and God says you're going to be cut off if you go there. I'm not going to bless you if you go to Egypt, but at any rate, there were a million Jews in Egypt, largely in Alexandria. About 200,000 of them lived in Alexandria, which is center, the greatest center of learning in that time period. So uh, they were about an eighth of the population of Egypt in the first century um, after Christ. And then... Um, Adolf Harnack said that there were about a million Jews in Syria, you know, which is just a neighboring country, and it was treated differently. You were treated differently if you were from if you were a Syrian Jew, because all those other countries in the world were considered to be heathen, and their very dust defiled. But the soil of Syria was declared clean, as though you were in the land itself. And, and to think about that, then all you got to do is kind of remember Jesus telling the, the Jews, whenever you go into a city and if they don't receive you, then you're to shake the dust off of them, which is a judgment. And it's the same judgment the Pharisees used any time they touched anything that had been touched by a Gentile. Or when they went to a Gentile land and then came back, they shook the dust off because they considered that to be defiled. Even the very dust of these places was considered to be defiled. And so that, you, you see there's huge numbers of, of Jews in the dispersion who would come in for these festivals. And so th- they would come, and then not only would they come, they would also leave, right? So the ones who came for the Passover when, when to saw, that saw Jesus crucified would have gone back and they would have shared this story. And then at Pentecost, the, the ones who came back seven weeks later would have heard a very different story about how that first story ended. It ended with resurrection. And wow, you wouldn't believe all this stuff. And then they see at Pentecost everything coming back. Together they, they see the mighty move of God on the day of Pentecost, in the in-gathering, first of the Jews, then of the Gentiles. But, the, but the, the whole city would have been filled with Jews, particularly at the time of Pentecost, and that's a huge celebration. It's a celebration in a very different way. It's a celebration of the harvest. So the harvest is ended, and so you kind of let your hair down, and you come in for that festival. But Pesach, Passover, is a much more solemn festival. But so what you get then is that. So that there is the sort of the size of uh, Judaism at the time of Jesus's birth, to, to, and know that that the vast majority of Jews didn't live in the land at that time. Multiple uh, multiples of that number lived in other places. There, like, as I said, there were there, we know there were more Jews in Egypt than there were in Jerusalem at the time. There were more Jews in Syria. At that time, there were more Jews in Babylon at that time. And then the, when Paul goes off in his missionary journeys, he goes places where there are synagogues. So he's going to go to those places. And so, so what you get is, is this odd mix of people. And that exactly is where the whole idea of the synagogue even came into being was during the time of the exile in Babylon. And it's credited most frequently with... Um, with Ezekiel, because he didn't want to happen to those Jews what had happened to the ones who had been exiled by the Assyrian invasion of the northern kingdom. And so he wanted to make sure that they retained their identity. 
And so teachers were set up to teach this. Those people probably in the beginning would have been Levites because that was one of the functions of Levites. Levites are, are the, the, the tribe of Levi, you know, the descendants of Jacob, the, the children of, of Jacob's son, Levi. And, and then within Levites, there's a separate group of people, right? And those people are, are the descendants of Aaron. So Aaron and Moses and Miriam, they're all Levites. So, But they're a special set-apart group within the Levite clan. They are then the priestly clan within the tribe of Levi. So all Levites are not priests, but all priests are Levites. So, it, But it's only those who can, who can trace descendant, their descendant to, back to Aaron. Those are the ones who are qualified to be the priests. The Levites are the ones who served the priests in the temple. They're treated very similar to priests. They, they, they are dispersed among the tribes once they come into the land in order that they can teach and maintain the truth outside Jerusalem. So those people probably were the scholars and the, pre, and the, and the teachers in the synagogues when they were in the dispersion in Babylon. And so there, there was nothing, the, the word rabbi, for instance, doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. It, the first instance scholars find of it actually is in the New Testament. That's where that title first becomes known outside, you know, in print uh, anywhere. But, but it would have been those people, those rabbis would have been the scholars, and, and only they and other scholars would have actually spoken Hebrew at that time. It would, it would have been only the scholarly language. Most people would have spoken what is a close cousin of that, which is Aramaic. It's probably what Jesus spoke most of the time. You see in John's Gospel particularly, there's several times when, when John will give us an Aramaism, and then he'll tell us. This is what that means. That, that word, that's an Aramaic term, and, and this is what it means. And so most of the time, that's what Jesus would have spoken. Most of the common people would have known Aramaic. They might have understood a little bit of Hebrew because that was the language which was read in the temple. So, and, and, but most of them probably would have spoken Greek most of the time. But they would have known Aramaic. I mean, it's like sort of um, when I go to Rwanda, I've always been amazed at all the languages that they know. The, the first language of, of Rwandese would be Kenyarwandan. But, but all of them, everybody in, on the continent, are going to also have some things in common. And so it's, it's important to know that, that Jesus is speaking primarily Aramaic because the people understood Aramaic, but, but then also it's Greek. Paul, his first language would likely have been Greek. Most of the time when Paul quotes anything from the Old Testament, he's using a Greek translation, which is known as a Septuagint. And it's, it's the LXX. Sometimes you'll see that reference for it. Um, it was a translation done in Alexandria. The Torah was, was translated in the 3rd century before Jesus, and the rest of it translated in the 2nd century. It was translated because the Alexandrian Library wanted a copy of all the great religious texts. And so the tradition is that they called in 70 um, people, from scholars from Israel, and had them come in and translate from Hebrew into Greek, the Old Testament. Well, the, the problem is any translation has got to make certain kinds of decisions. And, and so sometimes there, there will be a distinction and a difference between what the Hebrew says and what the Greek says, because sometimes you've got to translate a concept 
a Jewish word might convey that concept exactly the way it intended to, but that might not translate directly into Greek. And so you've got to kind of figure out, okay, what is that trying to say that, that a Greek person would understand in their own language? So, th- so those distinctions are there. Now, the Septuagint, um, it, it was frequently, it was mostly used by the Christian church because they're bringing in people who don't speak either one of these languages, Hebrew or Aramaic, which, like I said, they're close, but, but they, they're not speaking those languages, so they, they're bringing in Greeks. And so they use the Septuagint because it's more commonly understood when you read it and speak it. But the, the Jews used it for a period of time, too. They really liked it until, well, the second century A.D. when they realized, wait a minute, that that's one thing that we can do to separate ourselves from the Christians because the Christians use the Septuagint. Let's go back to the Masoretic text of the Hebrew, that, which is where it comes from. It's from the Masoretes. So it, it, let's go back to that to differentiate ourselves. But that's not the only reason. The other reason was they realized that I've got to go to the original language to really understand everything because because there's some differences. There were there were there were decisions translators had to make that were legitimate decisions, but it changes things to a Hebrew mind. And so, I mean, every pen stroke uh, writing the Hebrew alphabet is important. The letters themselves have numeric values. They have they have their own meanings. So th- those things are important. And so that's the 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 setting is. So you've got location of Jews, well, all over the world language of Jews, primarily Aramaic, but a lot of Greek in there too. And so this stuff is, is not easy to see. So you've got these, these people who are coming in, a lot of the people that come in from, uh, for these pilgrim festivals don't even speak Hebrew. So you've got this melange of people coming in, and now you can understand a little bit better about why what happens on the day of Pentecost when everybody can hear in their own language is such an important thing because so many of them didn't speak the languages they would have spoken. And Galilean, which most of the disciples were, was even a little bit different dialect. And so then the Spirit comes and translates all of those into the languages that the people there can then understand. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. But that that's sort of an idea of, of kind of who these people are, where they're coming from, and what their location, what their location is and what their languages are, and why language is actually important in all these things. So next time what we're going to talk about is, is the leadership, the leadership, the temple leadership, but also those who are outside the temple. So um, a blessed day tomorrow uh, for all of us. Uh, I hope that, that the Lord shows up wherever you worship tomorrow, uh, today, tomorrow. Yep. I hope the Lord shows up powerfully and, and you're, you're transformed by that.